This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Want to make the jump to all grain brewing but don't want to spend thousands of dollars? Brewcraft USA has the answer for you. The 5 gallon grandfather system lets you mash, sparge, boil, and chill with its all in one design. Available exclusively where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. And with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like, or you can click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own with part of the proceeds going to the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out and see what works and what doesn't. On today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss hop shortages and get a brief rundown of Denny's trek to the snowy wonderland of Vail, Colorado for the Big Beers Festival. From there, it's off to the lab, where we finally get to uh, announce the first results of our first ever Igor-based experiment. I'm really super, super excited about this. Do Y-East 1056 and White Labs 001 produce the same results? We'll be uh, joined by our special guest, Marshall Schott, a.k.a. Mr. Brewlosophy himself, as we dissect the result of our testers' efforts, and then we'll begin our the epic, epic first of two parts of our interview with the always voluble Roger Davis, the head of Alameda's Faction Brewing Company. And then finally, we'll hit you with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Okay, Drew, so uh, have we been hearing from listeners? What's up? Oh, boy, have we? Yeah, I, I think uh, this is the week when we finally started to get the emails rolling in, so kind of cool. Uh, a lot of reactions to various parts of our uh, previous episodes. Uh, we had uh, Scott Knock of Northern Colorado. He wrote in to tell us that he didn't believe us initially when we were talking about, hey, homebrew shops are reporting slowdowns and some of them are possibly closing, until just after the episode uh, aired and he listened to it, and he discovered that his local and his favorite shop were both closing. So he asked, for, yeah. So he asked for our feedback on how to keep stores open, and it's just like we said in the show: get your butts into the store, get other butts in the stores, buying your pieces and parts. It's the only way you're going to keep your stores open. Uh, now it also turns out after some further exploration with Scott, 
he discovered that his favorite uh, homebrew store, which is attached to a brewery, is actually closing down because the brewery needs the room for expansion. That's another problem with some of these homebrew shops. And also some of them, it's just going to be a hobby turned into a business that people decide they don't like. Uh, on the brew year's resolutions angle, uh, we've heard uh, from more folks like uh, Vera Deckard in San Antonio, who is currently in the process of opening a brew pub there. It's taken her three years, but this is the year that not only will they open, but she's also going to make a resolution to blog about the whole process to help people who are trying to open up a place in Texas. Uh, and she's also looking to adopt some of my craziness into her process. So good luck, Vera. And y'all make sure. <laughs> yeah, really, man. If she's going to adopt some of your stuff, good luck. Uh-huh, musher man. But hey, y'all need to make sure to check out the OK Brewery and Ice House when it opens a little bit later this year in San Antonio. Uh, Zach Kime also writes in with an interesting decision. That, like the folks at the Rare Barrel, he's going to focus on a set of core recipes to establish his house style. So he'll have more homebrew to drink instead of kind of faffing about doing, you know, whatever idea strikes him at a time. Uh, also, since he's in the Baltimore area, he's pledging to attend the NHC. And so should you. Uh, right now, yeah, I know that man. Denny and I were kind of kicking around a couple of ideas in the background, trying to plan out something fun uh, for everyone while we're there. Uh, maybe an experiment, maybe some tasting, maybe a hoedown. I don't know. Take your pick. And then lastly, uh, I can safely say y'all are a bunch of g- gadget freaks. Not only are there a few of you promising to sous vide a couple of eggs the next time you mash, but uh, some of you wrote in with practical tips like Jim Ferrer, who uses a circulator to precisely ramp up his strike NHLT water. Uh, Troy Elder wrote in to tell us that he and his business partner did a brew day where they first sous vide some salmon, because food, and then they used the water bath to mash in a reduced-sized batch of his Belgian quad for an hour at a precise 149 degrees. The grain was in a bag, and so it couldn't gum up the works, and they quickly rinsed that grain into another kettle and produced 1.5 gallons of quad from six pounds of Pilsner, and that's not too shabby. No, man, that's... Homebrewers are nothing if not creative, you know? Well, the, the one I love is, okay, so the sous vide immersion circulators, when they first appeared on the market, these things were like $1,000, $2,000. And now there are a couple companies out there that have knocked that price down to like $99 or $200. And homebrewers are notoriously cheap, right? But now it turns out that uh, they're also notorious gadget heads because they're willing to spend 100 to $200 on a fancy heating gizmo. <laughs> so... I love the so, I love the contradictory only, nature. Yeah, if only the homebrew shop sold those, then maybe they'd still be in business. There you go. All right, well, and that's our listener mail for the week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, just uh, drop us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else that you might see Dane and I hanging around. So, buddy, I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty. Let's head to the pub. Yeehaw. Okay, let's meet you there. Alrighty, we're sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers. Uh, I'm actually drinking one of mine today. As Drew alluded to, I have uh, recently put together another mushroom beer, a Belgian Golden Strong with Matsutakis, and I'm drinking the base beer today, which is a whole lot like Duval. And let me tell you, uh, I am loving this beer. How about you, man? What are you having? 
Well, I figured that uh, since today is our first experimental results return, I would go ahead and I would have some of my own batch of the experimental beer that we did. Uh, although uh, my full version of the batch, which all the aroma hops, and that's the Magnum Blonde, uh, which for all the reputation I have as being a crazy, crazy brewer, it is one of my favorite beers and probably one of the simplest things I make. Wow, that's great, man. So uh, to get started today, uh, I want to talk about something that seems to be becoming a real trend uh, in the brewing world, and that's adding grapefruit to your beers, especially IPAs, to kind of like enhance that uh, kind of grapefruit character you get from hops. Now, at first take, that looks like a really great idea, and it's it certainly doesn't suck. It's not a bad idea. But it turns out that I and a whole bunch of people like me take medications that uh, can interact with grapefruit and have possibly deadly results. Now, when, I, when we started posting this on our website, we got a lot of comments about, well, you know, how much and is the zest okay and the juice not okay? And to tell you the truth, I'm not a doctor or a researcher, so I really don't know. All I know is that when I started taking these medications, I was told not to have grapefruit and told about the consequences of taking grapefruit. So I would rather just avoid the whole thing. Now, I'm not trying to tell anybody to not use grapefruit. If that's what you want to do, it's your beer. Go for it. And I'll bet you it's going to be damn tasty. But please, please, please just let everyone know that there is actually grapefruit in the beer and that this is not just some name you're giving it because it invokes the, the flavor and aroma of grapefruit. Uh, that beer could potentially be deadly to some people, and that's nothing to mess around with. So, again, all I'm saying is if you put grapefruit in your beer, let people know it's there. Seems fair, doesn't it? It does, and I will also say that I think, I don't know about you, I mean, I already knew about the grapefruit thing, but I did hear back from a lot of people, hey, I never realized this about grapefruit. But I did also learn another valuable lesson, which is uh, sometimes I have to learn to moderate my writing style uh, because I tend to be fairly dramatic when I write. And so the very first uh, version of the article that you'll see on experimentalbrew.com kind of uh, had a very over-the-top set of language attached to it. And we got taken to task pretty uh, harshly and roundly by some people in the homebrewing community for it. Uh, so Yeah, but you know, man, when you're coming to playing with people's lives i don't know if there's necessarily anything wrong with that no, um, no but it, yeah. i think the real lesson was is that you know I mean, there was a better way to put the message than than i had to put it initially and certainly i think part of the problem was and the thing that really was wounding to me and would be wounding to you too sir was uh we got compared to the food babe for that article oh uh, oh oh okay 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 then i see the point because Last thing I want to do is get compared to the food, babe. So right. anyway, just keep in mind, if you're taking uh, beta blockers or uh, blood thinners and a whole list of other drugs, uh, your doctor's already told you to avoid grapefruit. Uh, be sure that you're not getting it in your beer um, unless you want to take more chances than I do. So, Well, I, I, do, want, I do want to add in one other thing. I, I think one other thing I learned from this whole thing was uh, – uh, there's an interaction between grapefruit and caffeine. And given uh, last week's topic or last episode's topic of the cold brew coffee that I drank that's designed to basically almost kill you, I think I'm going to have to start taking some grapefruit juice in the morning with it as well. Yep, there you go, man. Whatever works. So, 
Another thing that's come up this week is that there have been a number of, uh, of emails, or specifically one particular email that seems to be showing up everywhere about a particular homebrew shop that was having trouble getting their uh, shipment of hops. Uh, they buy hops from L.D. Carlson, who is getting them from YCH Hops, formerly Hop Union. And there was supposition going around that... Uh, that uh, Carlson was not being given the hops they needed in a timely fashion to get to the homebrew shops and that homebrewers were far down on the list of things. So we, uh, rather than speculate, went right to the source and contacted uh, Don Bryant, a friend of mine who just also happens to be the CEO of YCH Hops. Uh, great guy. Um, I won't read Don's emails here verbatim, but basically... What it comes down to is that they have a real commitment to homebrewers and have for a lot of years. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're coming out with new packaging for homebrewers with all kinds of really cool information about the hops on the packaging, including things like the hop storage index and stuff like that. Um, but basically, Don also said that there are some varieties that are going to be in short supply and they will get them out there as soon as possible, but that doesn't negate anything about their commitment to homebrewers. Did I kind of get that right? Yeah, I, I thought the interesting part that he talked about in the emails back to us was uh, just a quick quote. He said that last year's craft hop consumption grew almost 50%, which wiped everybody out in the hop market. And so uh, they and L.D. Carlson are, are trying to do a bunch of things. And uh, YCH has uh, uh, planted almost 4,000 more acres of hops, uh, particularly focusing on some of the big varieties that everybody's obsessed with right now, Citrus, Simcoe, Mosaic, you know, all kind of the big IPA hops, which are the ones that are actually in short order. I mean, it just seems to me that, yeah, it's kind of the exact same thing that we saw a couple of years ago, right, when the when we had a couple bad hop crops and we had hop farmers pulling out of the market and then suddenly craft brewers exploding and suddenly there was a, a hop shortage that led people to try stupid things like Argentinian grown cascades. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just suspect that we're seeing that again, but not because of any bad hop crops. The hop crops seem to be pretty good this year, but just literally from the demand of 4,000 plus breweries, plus all the home brewers in the country. So hmm. I think it's time that we need to clarify just exactly what YCH hops is. And I'll, I'll start with, I guess it's a disclaimer, at least some information. I have been to YCH hop and brew school twice. I was a presenter last year. I'll be being a presenter again this year, September 1st and 2nd. If any of you out there want to go great program. Um, I also write uh, for their blog called Hopwire. I just wrote my first article for them recently. That'll be out there in about a week. Um, but let's let's get one thing straight. YCH Hops is not some big evil corporation trying to dole out hops where they make the most money. YCH is owned by the hop farmers whose hops they sell. I think there are eleven of them, maybe twelve. But YCH is owned by the hop farmers themselves uh, to process and distribute the hops that they grow. So again, this is, this is not some big evil overlord. This is a consortium of the farmers themselves who are out there working their butts off to produce these hops. 
again, I hope some of you can get a chance to go to Hop and Brew School and uh, get, get a real feeling for how this all works. So, At any rate, hope that we've at least given you a little bit of insight into why you might not be able to get your favorite varieties of hops. Now, let's go on vacation. About a year ago, Drew and I were asked if we would be presenters at a beer fest in Vail, Colorado, called Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines. Okay, Big Beers, Vail, Colorado, I mean, what are you going to say? Well, unfortunately, Drew had to say no. He wasn't able to attend, but I went on my own. And let me tell you, this is probably the best beer fest that you've never heard of. It's held at the uh, Vail Cascade Resort, a gorgeous, gorgeous place, high in the mountains of Vail. Um, They have probably about 1,700 attendees there for the big Saturday afternoon session, which is the commercial tasting. Uh, There are 118 breweries represented there with well over 350 beers. Also, during the course of the weekend, there are 13 educational seminars. Uh, some maybe more fun than educational, like the cigar and beer pairing seminar or the yoga and beer seminar, neither of which I participated in, I'll tell you right now. There's also a homebrew competition featuring Belgians, big beers, and barley wines. There's a killer welcome reception. There are three food and beer pairing events, um, and they have actually a double beer pairing, meaning for each course of food, two beers are served. Brewers come out and talk about them. And then afterwards, the people there get to uh, vote on which beer they thought was a better pairing for the food. Very cool. Plus, you get twice as much beer. Now, what they're going for with this festival is a high-end white tablecloth kind of boutique approach, uh, which may or may not appeal to you, but that's the way Vale is. Uh, I will tell you that in terms of attendees, this was probably the highest level brew fest I've ever been to, meaning you will get closer to the real movers and shakers in the beer world than at any other beer fest you go to whether it's uh, brewery owners, brewers, uh, media people, whatever, uh, you are right there with the people who kind of determine where things are going. And it was just tons of fun. It was a beautiful location. Uh, Probably for me, the find of the weekend was a uh, brewery from Boca Raton, Florida called Barrel of Monks. Now, when you do a seminar, they ask you to pick three beers from the breweries who were there to serve at your seminar. Um, For me, this was great because it gave me a chance to discover something new. I chose Prima Pills, which is not new at all to me and a favorite. Uh, Avery had a pumpkin beer there, which was way over the top, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. But Barrel of Monks uh, for my seminar, I picked them because I had never heard of them, knew nothing about them. And they supplied us with a beer called Start. That is S apostrophe T-A-R-T. The whole idea behind this beer is it's a sour barrel-aged beer that's supposed to taste like it has fruit added to it, even though it doesn't. They used a strain of breath that uh, really gave it a wonderful, wonderful strawberry flavor. When I asked people in the class or in the seminar to shout out their impressions of the beer, 
everybody immediately shouted out strawberries, and the beer just absolutely rocked. Uh, later on, uh, during the commercial tasting in the afternoon, I was kind of stuck behind a table selling uh, books, so Gary Glass went out of his way to go and get me the beer, and he brought me a rum barrel aged beer from Barrel of Monks. And uh, guys, if you're listening to this, write us and tell us more about this beer because I know nothing more than it was rum barrel aged and it was freaking delicious. Well, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. I'd I'd like to revise your statement. Hey guys, if you're listening to this, uh, you could just uh, email us or uh, the details and then mail us some of the beer. Yeah, he he would say that, wouldn't he? Although I wouldn't object either. So anyway, um, I've been talking to Phil at Barrel of Monks, and uh, we're going to have them on the show later to talk about their brewery. But in the meantime, if I'll just say that uh, if you're in southern Florida and you like Belgian beers, you will not be disappointed if you stop by and visit these guys. So anything else, Drew? I think that's about it, huh? Yeah, no, I, th- I think we're ready to get back to the lab and actually talk some results. Alrighty, so uh, we're going to suck down our beers and head off to Casa Verde and uh, talk about our lab results. All right, welcome to the welcome back to the lab here at Casa Verde Estates in Nowhere, Oregon. Uh, we're here to discuss our very first. Uh, experiment and the results and we're kind of super excited to do that and since you know really we're new at this and we decided that we needed some expert help we decided to call in the big guns and we have online with us right now uh mr marshall shot who you may better know as the brewlosopher hi marshall hey drew and denny hey marshall thanks for getting here man <laughs> oh my pleasure yeah it's a, a little bit of a uh, conundrum of patching and internet connections and everything else to make this happen but uh, like I said, we're super excited to have you on board to help explain to people all sorts of stuff about uh, experimental results. Uh, why don't you go ahead and, uh, for the people who don't know you, which probably are like three people who are listening to this podcast, uh, why don't you go ahead and explain uh, brewlosophy.com? Yeah, uh, just real quick, uh, brewlosophy.com uh, tends to focus mostly on kind of the scientific, nerdy aspects of brewing and beer, and uh, we do a lot, uh, I think. I think most of what people know us for the is is doing what a lot of what you guys are doing is triangle tests uh uh, testing out different process variables and and, uh, ingredients and equipment variables and stuff like that yeah one and i'll i'll have to admit when uh when denny and i were first writing experimental homebrewing you know we got the text out and it was finally in the publisher's hands and we were we were done and we were getting ready to start doing these uh experiments and try to do some of what we're starting to do now and that, that was when you actually first appeared on the scene. It was like, hey, he's doing what we want to do. That's Ser- cool. Serendipity, man. Yeah. Well, and I think I, I, I like to see the whole rise of uh, uh, sloppy citizen science is how we've been referring to it, right? I love it. Yes. Well, all right. So let's go, let's go ahead and uh, since time is short and episodes are long, uh, why don't we get talking about our experiment here? Uh, so the very first experiment that we did uh gave the gave the call to action about two months ago to the crowd and we've had a whole bunch of igors take up the challenge and go and uh brew up a recipe uh and the recap just real quick was is there a noticeable difference between white yeast 1056 and white labs 001 when fermented in the same wort at the same temperature now 
we know this is a fairly simple experiment, but it's a good way to get started because we always say that these are interchangeable when, when writing a recipe. Can we actually do this or are we actually foolish to think about it? After all, the, both the strains are, are supposedly from the same source, the legendary Ballantine Brewing uh, in New Jersey. We started with a simple recipe, uh, My Magnum Blonde, which uh, is exactly what I was drinking during the pub segment. We used the no aroma variant of this. The normal Magnum Blonde has basically a bunch of pale malt with two editions of Magnum, one in bittering and one as an aroma edition. This particular experiment, because we wanted to emphasize the yeast characteristics, we did a no aroma edition uh, Magnum Blonde. It's very clean, it's very crisp, and the beer is about as dumbly simple and tasty as you can get. Uh, and it's kind of funny since it's one of my favorite recipes and everybody thinks I do nothing but strange things. So Denny, uh, you have any feelings about the experiment, like what you expected to see? Well, you know, I was curious in that I have not done a rigorous experiment about it, but my impression in the past has been that I can tell the difference between 1056 and 001. So for me, I was uh, interested to see if uh, I was just making that up or if anybody else would be uh, able to do the same thing. Well, and Marshall, I know that you saw the experiment uh, ahead of time uh-huh. and now you've seen the results, but did you have any kind of preconceived notions going into this? Uh, my preconceived note, I've used both of those strains, 1056 and 001, numerous times and uh, never side by side, but in my opinion, they're exactly the same. All right. So then that's pretty much right. You're wrong. (laughs) Oh, come on, Denny. (laughs) Well, I think, I I think within reasonable operating assumptions of home brewing, you could say that my preconceived notion was that the strains were, if not identical, damn near identical. Exactly. So, all right. uh, To kick off or to talk about what we had happen with the experiment, we actually had uh, seven different Igors. Uh, do uh, the results and get the results back in prior to taping. I know we have a couple of other Igors out there. Their results as they come in will be added to the uh, official website listing. And uh, I just really wanted to say I'm really super excited that we had seven groups of people uh, tackle this. Uh, Denny, uh, do you got the list of people? Yes, I have that list of people here. Some Ah, yes. We want to thank all these Igors too, man. You guys just absolutely rocked it and... Uh, keep it up you know we want to see you back for more experiments so thank you very much to andy turlington bob in southern california casey price jason click jason mundy nikki forster and the mossy owl oh i love that <laughs> that sounds like it should be a, a, a nick danger porter it character. does <laughs> well and so one of the things i i also really appreciate was that uh, I know, uh, Marshall, when you guys are doing your experiments, you usually have uh, what, uh, one crew doing sort of one or multiple tasting segments, right, from a single batch. That's right, yeah. All right. So I think one of the things I was uh, really curious to see was what sort of kind of differences and results we'll get now that we're uh, when we're doing this with multiple brewers and multiple tasting sessions around different parts of the world. So uh, are, are Igor's to that end actually – conducted 12 different tasting sessions. They had 75 individual tasters and they reported back the experience was of the tasters was everything from beer newbies to high level, uh, obsessive beer nerds. Um, now, so let's talk about the mechanics. Uh, the recipe, as we said before, was basically just pale malt to about a 1047 original gravity. 
with a single edition of Magnum uh, to bring it up to 45 IBUs. Uh, looking at our brewer's notes, uh, everybody said that they nailed it within a few degrees of what they expected for the gravities. Uh, target gravities were consistent both on the original and on the finals. Uh, we did have, I thought it was kind of curious in looking through the notes, consistent reports that the Y-East 1056 batches started more quickly. But, yeah. But that both batches ended up fermenting out to around the same terminals. So I don't know about you guys, but does that jibe up with any of your experience between White Labs and White East? Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't actually uh, used the 001 enough to really come up with a consistent uh, theory like that. Um, I will say that I don't really see any correlation between how fast it started and what the final gravity was. But you know, I, to me, those are just yeah. curiosities, right, Marshall? Yep. Yeah, I, I'm with Denny on the core, the, that, that piece that the final gravity doesn't seem contingent on how quickly the, the fermentation gets started. But I will say that I've used uh, White Labs and Y-Yeast extensively, and perhaps because of the nutrient pack that Y-Yeast includes in their uh, their, their bags, um, it, it, I do notice that if I'm pitching straight without a starter, it does seem to uh, start up a little bit quicker than a vial that I pitch straight. Yeah. Sure. So they get, they get a little extra goose from that, that first little bit of nutrient. And that makes exactly. sense. We, we did ask our Igors in this experiment to do straight pitches from a, either a vial or a pouch. And also we stressed to them, Hey, you know, try and find uh, yeast that are similar in age. Like they were basically had about the same expiration date so that we could be sure that we were operating somewhat in the same level of vitality. Uh, but yeah, I do agree. I think it's a, an interesting curiosity and probably a side effect of that, uh, that choice to say no starter. Uh, speaking of interesting curiosities, uh, th- there was a real anomaly here that I think we want to, uh, we want to talk about because, uh, things, there was one particular batch that, uh, was very different than the others. Yeah. So talking, uh, uh talking through and before, uh, before I say his name, uh, rest assured, we cleared this with him. Uh, one of our <laughs> Igors, uh, Andy Turlington. Uh, came back and reported that 11 out of 11 of his tasters correctly identified the different beers. But he said that's because his White Labs batch developed a phenol, a very, very noticeable phenol that uh, he suspects is because he was trying to turn the batch around uh, relatively quickly or much faster than he usually does. So, yeah, this- I, you know, and, and no, no offense to Andy, but uh, I don't think that probably had anything to do with it. But- 100% agree, Denny. Hey, Marshall, you are one smart dude. You know, what can I say? <laughs> I kiss your ass for good. Uh, you know. <laughs> Get a room, you two. Get a room. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree, though. I, in my experience, and I, I brew an awful lot, um, for better or for worse, <laughs> and in my, in my experience, phenols aren't necessarily, as much as we've been uh, bred to believe that phenols are a component of uh, higher fermentation temps, I read what Andy wrote, and it sounds like he made uh, a fantastic uh, uh, Y yeast version of the beer, but uh, phenols to me are almost always a contamination issue. They they almost always come uh, from some sort of introduction of a, of a contaminant of some sort. Usually, a, a wild yeast or, a, or a, you know a, a microbe is um, some sort of bacteria. Yeah, I'm well, I'm right I'm right there with you on that one, buddy. So now I'm actually kind of glad that this happened on our very first experiment because. This gets us to allow to, or allows us to talk about something I think is rather important, which is uh, what happens when something goes terribly wrong, uh, and what does that mean about the validity of the data? 
So in this particular case, do we accept these 11 correct identifications into the data set? Or do we toss them on the idea that what was actually being uh, tested was not the actual question at hand? In this particular case, what Andy ended up testing was whether or not his tasters could detect a phenolic batch. To, to me, it's obvious. We got to toss them, man. These, this is not what we were going for. Um, something obviously went wrong. Uh, these do not should not be included in the data set, right, Marshall? So, oh, that's a leading question, Council. Uh, I, I'm all for uh, reporting both sets of data because I don't like to, to. I don't like to toss what is actual, but but. I think it's important to recognize an anomaly for an anomaly and to parse out that data and to, and to give people the, uh, the option to kind of choose what they want. In my opinion, I, I'm 100% with Denny. It sounds to me like the 001 batch that uh, the Andy made probably was contaminated. And so um, what I did just for you guys was I ran our statistics that we use on uh, both sets of data. And I'm happy to share that with you. Please do. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and I don't, I don't know how deep we want to get into the arbitrariness of the P value. Um, (laughs) it's something that, it's something that I completely recognize and understand, but it's a standard that we like to use. Uh, it's a gauge and, uh, it helps us to kind of, uh, focus our thinking at least. Well, so for, Um, for our listeners who may, who this may be the first time they've ever heard of the P value. Yeah. Can you go ahead and give them an explanation? Oh my God! I no, uh, that and, means how much you—that ha- means how much you have to pee after you drink the beer, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, the the p value is—it's basically just a probability that what? Oh my God! I suck at this. Um, the it's the probability that what somebody is noticing that the that the uh, the amount that the observed. Uh, I'm just going to read to you off of Wikipedia now because I'm terrible. <laughs> it's a function of the observed sample results that's used for testing a statistical hypothesis. So um, it's the, the probability of obtaining a result equal to or more extreme than what's actually observed. Right. And, and so, I mean, talking in real terms, you know, like st- <laughs> uh, whenever you talk to statisticians, right? Yeah. If they're talking, oh, hey, you know, this thing has a probability of X, Y, Z. That requires a very sort of large data set. What a p-value really seems to be is a sort of a level of confidence that there is something here. That what you are observing is is either true. It's cl- how close to truth what you're observing is. That's the best way I can think about it. But at the same time, it's it's that number is just kind of invented by statisticians. And so there's a lot. You know, oh, I don't know if it's a lot, but there's a few people out there who are really you know, hark on the fact that, well, this is arbitrary and it doesn't mean anything. And, and so, you know, well, that's fine. Well, but, uh, you know, as, as brewers, we, we should point out, just like we talked about in the first episode, you know, the P-value was effectively invented by uh, William, William Seeley Gossett. That's a, right. A.K.A. student who was brewmaster for Guinness. And we've been using it now in the brewing industry for almost 115 years. So, hey, whatever, it's been good enough for 115 years. Why break it? Hey, cheers, Drew. So, uh, so let's uh, cut the suspense and tell people what the results are. Okay, let's do this. So the p-value, when including the 11 tasters that Andy Turlington, uh, uh, the all 11 who got it right, 
um, the participants that he was able to gather. The p-value on that is actually so low that I'm unable to, uh, it's 0. .00. I'm actually trying to expand the... Uh, well, here, while you expand, I'll give people the raw numbers uh, real quick. So if you take the 11, uh, the 11 errant phenolic batch tasters, we had 75 tasters. We had 40 out of 75 or 53% of the tasters successfully identify the different beer. AKA they could pick out whichever one was different, whether it was a white labs beer or the white yeast beer. If you don't include those 11 tasters, then you had 29 of 64 tasters tasting on this particular question who were able to successfully identify the beer or about 45% success rate. That's right. So when we include the 11 who got it right, uh, Andy's data, we're at point zero 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 one, which is extremely. I mean, if we're going to give a, uh, if we're going to say that you can measure the extremity of, of significance, it's very significant. Um, mm -hmm. It's pretty obvious that there's a difference there. But when we take that away, and this is the part that interests me, so when we minus the anomaly, if we're going to call it that, twenty nine out of sixty four creates a p value of point zero two one, which is still pretty far under point zero five which would suggest that there is a, a, a significant difference in distinguishability when presented with a triangle test. Right. And, and a way to think, a way for people to think about this is the reason why you do a triangle test is if you give somebody, if you give people just a random choice or, you know, like here are two glasses, you know, choose, uh, choose which one's better or choose which one's supposed to be, uh, you know, somehow the answer to the question you would expect randomly if there was no difference that 50% of the people would get it correct. Yeah, uh, 33%. Well, yeah. when you do a triangle test and you have three right. choices, then yeah, you drop down to 33%. What we're seeing here, and it's very interesting, was you know, you're seeing that 45% when you don't include the, the phenolic batch or 53% when you do. And that to me, yeah, that says, just like the p-value does, there's a difference that people are finding. There's definitely something going on, yes. And it means so. that I was right all along, right? <laughs> of course, Denny. <laughs> no, it means that it means that there's data that indicates that maybe there's something there, but not that you're right. I refuse to admit to that. <laughs> and even when I'm right, he won't admit I'm right. Hell no. Uh, so now I have to I have to admit, yeah, my my takeaway on this was huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, because you would think here, you know, okay. So one of the, one of the very first things I always do whenever an experiment doesn't go in a direction that I would expect it to is I start trying to figure out, okay, why, why, why did it not go the way I expected it to? Is it that my assumptions are wrong, which would be the case here that Denny's right, that there are really detectable differences between the E strains or was there something else going on? And the problem is at least for the way this experiment is set up. You know, you could argue, okay, well, you know, maybe there was something different about fermentations. There was something different about the batches, but we set this up to be a very simple chain experiment, right? There's not much that can go wrong here unless uh, one of your batches get con contaminated. And in looking right. at the notes from our Igors, they all did pretty much exactly what you'd expect people to do and did it right. And so that kind of makes me wonder, okay, maybe there is something here and maybe Denny might have a point. <laughs> he said it. He said it. Uh, all right, so, but now, Denny, do, what do you think? I guess I'm really not too surprised by the results based on my own experiences. Um, and, you know, what I what I also want to say is that uh, for all you guys out there listening to this, 
we will not only post the results on the uh, website, we will post a lot of the comments that people gave uh, as they were tasting the beers. So you can kind of see what they found about them and uh, maybe make up your mind to try it yourself. Well, and that's and reading through those comments, I think, was actually really uh, enlightening because what we saw was different uh, different people, uh, different groups reacting to the same yeast in different ways. Yeah, you know, some people saying the, I think a lot a lot of the results saying uh, the O one is more bitter, the ten fifty six is fruitier. But then I also saw comments where that was reversed. Um, yeah. So I think I think some of that some of that'll be interesting for people to wade through. Uh, Marshall, do you know say anything interesting in the commentary? Uh, same exact thing you pointed out. And uh, to me, the most interesting aspect is the fact that, like you said, uh, you know, one person will comment one way on one yeast, whereas another person will comment the exact same way on the other yeast. And uh, to me, that that whole uh, when we expect there to be a difference, we tend to look for that difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, that 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 to me is probably the most fascinating component of all of this that we're doing. Yeah, and and so that's that's the reason why we're going to put the full tasting notes up because I I think it's really going to be handy for people to see this and go, uh, are you guys having the same beer? Is this the same yeast? Uh, yeah. I also well, and I also want to point out I love the fact that uh, one of the Igors, uh, Jason Click, uh, he was all set to do a second tasting panel. Like you know, hey, I'm going to get out there and make sure I get even more data, which we love. Uh, but he accidentally, yeah, he accidentally kicked the keg. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. So, so the beer didn't <laughs> suck. So, well, yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, so, Drew, why, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you and Marshall wrap it up here and kind of like give us an overview of the whole thing? All right. Well, so I think the uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the the takeaway is, interestingly enough, there are differences, uh, and it is actually detectable now. The real question and the thing I don't think we've settled on is what the differences are and whether or not those differences actually matter that much when we're talking recipe to recipe when you're not actually doing a side-by-side comparison. Yeah, I I, I would say that uh, for this, and and this is probably the most PC way for me to approach this, is that uh, in this particular experiment with the the particular variable, with the particular sets of uh, participants that we had, uh, that there was a um, that, that that the folks were reliably capable of telling apart 1056 from 001, which is fascinating to me. I know, blew my mind. It, me too. I, I I would never have guessed that to be the case. Oh, you have such weak palates, you children. Oh, of course that's what it, that's the shitty <laughs> palates argument. That's what I call that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the the beer taster's equivalent of an ad hominem attack. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I'd like to say, um, I had you know, I've uh, one of the guys who writes for Brewlotsky, Ray Found, was uh, present at a meeting where an Igor showed up and did the tasting, and you know, um, you know, Ray was telling me that he he I don't I don't know which one it was, but he he felt like he he was able to tell the difference as well, and that that to me is just so mind blowing that you know these two Chico strains are producing different results. Well, and then when you go and you look, and we didn't even have the third the third piece of the equation in there, which is USO five. Yeah, uh, and you know, I I would always believe that you could tell USO five apart from ten fifty six and oh one because I think USO five has a peach character to it, but uh, and it doesn't flocculate as well. But if you had told me that people were going to find a difference between ten fifty six and oh one reliably, I would have I would have pushed you into the next century. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Well, you know, what I found kind of interesting was that uh, the differences that the tasters reported when they started getting qualitative about things are, are pretty much the way that it had come across to me also, you know, so... What's, so sometimes you find, oh, one more multi, and uh, sometimes you find 1056 more multi? That's what <laughs> I got out of the notes. Oh, really? Yeah, I I guess that I found that, uh, to me, what I saw in those, and maybe I need to go back and read through the notes again, was that uh, 1056 seemed to be a little bit, I don't want to say cleaner, but maybe more straightforward. Does that make any sense? Uh, I, I don't know, man. Uh, like I said, we're grasping at straws here. So then, uh, basically, how do we call this experiment, guys? Was it uh, was it basically successful? Did we learn something? Well, I think we did. I think we learned that there are detectable differences. And I would also call it a success because we had seven groups of people actually pull off a internet-based experiment and report back to us. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, that's 64 participants. That's, that, that, I mean, even with that, when we minus the anomaly folks at 64, that's fantastic. That's higher than we've gotten. So. Well, and I just think that's kind of one of the powers of doing some of this crowdsourcing, right? We can we can spread this out and learn even more things. So I'm really excited to see how this works. Yeah, and we've all had discussions about uh, the nature of the experiments and the fact that uh, that at least the Igors know what the experiment is about going into it. And we're going to have Marshall back to discuss this in the future, the, the whole experiment structure and uh, what effect it might have on the results. But I would say for number one that uh, that we had a really good, good turnout, a good set of data, some interesting results. And uh, Marshall, thank you so much for joining us, buddy. Yeah, oh, my pleasure. And honestly, I've got to say to Jason, Andy, Casey, Nikki, the Mossy Owl, Jason, Mundy, and Bob in Southern California, kudos to you guys, man. This takes a lot of work, and uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing for the homebrew community. Yeah, I, I think this rocks. And hey, b before we actually leave you off here, I want to make sure uh, you're still recruiting uh, tasters, right, in areas around where your guys are brewing. That's right. You know, we, we just uh, we just published an article, our call for uh, participants, and it, we, we're not looking for anyone to brew the beers or anything like that. We're looking for you to do the easy work, which is just drink the beers and share them with your friends and um uh, if, if you live near, you know, Fresno or Riverside or Corona, um, uh, Redondo Beach, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or Miami, Florida, get in touch with us and let us know. We'll, we'll hook you up. And uh, if you're interested in maybe hosting a tasting event yourself for a Brewlosophy experiment, then uh, shoot me an email, marshall at brewlosophy.com, and, and uh, we'll, we'll contact you about that. There we go. All right. Well, and... and uh, you know, thanks again, Marshall, for uh, helping us out here and explaining to the crowd some of the first results and giving us your feedback on it. I'd like to have a, a third-party opinion. And in the meanwhile, I hope that this is the start of a long and fruitful relationship between experimental brewing and brewlosophy. Absolutely. Cheers, guys. Yeah. Right and hey, uh, Denny, prepare the bleep button because, frank <laughs> uh, frankly, I think this is so much fun that we're going to have to science the shit out of this beer. That's right. <laughs> Okay, everybody, thanks for uh, listening to this segment. Uh, next time, we're going to uh, announce a new experiment, another hop-based experiment, with our good friend and collaborator and sponsor, uh, Nico Bruce, supplying the hops for it. So, cheers, guys. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Cheers, man.
thanks to our sponsor, Craftmeister, as we've been telling you the last few weeks, uh, Drew and I took a little tour of the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, got to visit a bunch of great breweries and talk to some really interesting, innovative, and crazy brewers. And here's one of them. So this time we're talking to Roger Davis of Faction Brewing, way out in Alameda Island in the Bay Area. All right, the island is really just off the shore of Oakland. But to get to the brewery, it's located in a Marine Corps helicopter hangar, or a former Marine Corps helicopter hangar. You kind of are running through all this military housing in order to get there, and suddenly you turn a corner, and there are these three hangars, and one of the hangars houses the company that makes Hangar One Vodka, which is where they get the name. Another one of the hangars uh, houses St. George's Spirits, which produces my favorite gins. And uh, yeah, we went there before we went to talk to Roger. Uh, and then right in the middle between the two is uh, Roger Davis's uh, giant warehouse or hangar uh, housing Faction Brewing Company. And uh, I think we had a really great time there. And Roger Roger is a raconteur and Roger has a fondness for using words. So much so that even though Roger was the last person I think we interviewed in the Bay Area, this is going to go on for two episodes because we talked about so much and it went uh, on for so long, and there are so many bleeping bleeps in it. Uh, Roger has a real way with words, and especially one particular word. Uh, so hopefully I got them all, and we're, we're not going to offend anybody out there. And uh, not that Drew and I were offended. We dove right in. Uh, but this is, this is a really wide-ranging and lengthy uh, interview uh, I think it would probably behoove you to sit down with a beer when you listen to it, just to get into the same frame of mind that we were all in. Keep in mind that we were in a huge cavernous room as we were doing this. And the last thing that I will mention is you'll hear a couple of references in here to uh, Jonathan, who is uh, Jonathan Etley, our host from Craftmeister, who was sitting in a corner listening to all this go down and trying to keep from just laughing uproariously the whole time uh, as he enjoyed the beautiful view across the bay to San Francisco. So without further explanation, here's Drew, me, and Roger. Hey, everybody uh, who's listening on the podcast. Uh, we're here right now at... Live? Uh, no, yeah. it's recorded. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So uh, we are here at uh, Faction Brewing in Alameda. Uh, off by the old uh, Naval and Marine Corps Air Station uh, in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And we are currently sitting in a room overlooking the whole of Roger's Domain uh, over across the, the brewery and everything else. Anyways, uh, this is actually where we're sitting, which Drew was explaining, is the old uh, commander's office. Oh, cool. And it only smells a little bit like mold. Well, that's the commander. <laughs> Old, moldy, and on the bay. It's still here. Exactly. So, first things first, to our audience who have, may not have ever heard your voice before, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. A little bit of biography and everything else. Uh, my name's Roger Davis, uh, brewer at Faction Brewing Company, and uh, that's all I got. All right, well, and I think... <laughs> There's more than that, but we'll get into that. There's a little bit more, but uh, I care not to speak about that. <laughs> it's all redacted under his uh, files by legal agreement. Yeah. Uh, so Where's my Mike? lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> your, your Fifth Amendment rights don't apply here, buddy. 
Alright, so Roger, uh, what are you drinking right now? Uh, right now I have the A-Town Pale, which uh, basically is a beer that we make here at uh, Faction Brewing that is only available in Alameda. And the reason that we did that is because we wanted to kind of create some kind of hype to have people come to Alameda well, you want for to have just the one special beer. Right. And uh, I was influenced by uh, Patrick uh, at uh, the brewery, mm -hmm. Patrick Rue. Um, and he made a beer that was only a mail, uh, available in Orange County. You know about that. And at the end of the day, it was just like, ah, that's a great idea. Let's just make a beer. And we self-distribute this beer through um, through our channels, or th through our van, which used to be uh, Claudia's car until it was like... Commandeered? Uh, no, until it was like almost f***ed up. <laughs> I was like, wow, we should probably find something else. So uh, the idea was just to make something that's totally different than uh, any other pale ale and a lot of people don't necessarily come to Alameda to drink the beer but we do sell a lot of growlers of it to go. Well I was going to say I, I, I appreciate the fact that like you've decided to make your special beer your special beer is a pale ale you know whereas like back in the day that was like oh, everybody's got to have a pale ale and now everybody's got to have an IPA and now the special thing is hey I've got a pale ale that's a good thing because uh, earlier today we were having lunch and uh, one of our guys was like well what do you have in terms of a pale ale and there was nothing it was all IPAs and everything else yeah. and it was like eh, maybe we've lost some of the focus here people yeah. all right. and I think uh, Denny what are, you, uh, what are you over here with uh, this is the uh, red what's the official name Roger uh, it's called red Red. Uh, good. So Faction Red. Cool well I got no, it right it, that's the official name is Faction Red okay right. so, it, so, and it's so, damn good yeah. Well, and then and then I have your. At least it's not f good. <laughs> well, it's f Are you allowed good. to cuss, by the way. Sure. Uh, yeah. Right. We'll bleep if we have to. All right. And then I have your 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 hop series, and I forget the the name of it, but this is the one with Delta and Comet. Oh, uh, the two hop. A hop two, two pale or a hop, yeah. two hop. Two hop. All right. Jesus so, Christ! You've been here for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, I've been having a couple of your beers, man. So, uh, and the, the two up here, and the Dalton Comet, you said the Comet, interestingly enough, is from 1973, back in the same vintage as Cascade. Uh, I wouldn't say 73 as uh, per proper year, but uh, it was back in the Ish. 70s, and I think it was like 73, 74 when they started putting it in the ground. Yeah. So, ish. And ish. Let's go with the ish. And, by the way, Drew is doing the... What is this called? Air quotes. Button. Air quotes. Bunny, bunny ears. <laughs> bunny, bunny ears. Air quotes. Whatever. What's, uh, what's this guy laughing at? I think he just thinks we're funny. Either that, or he's amused by the fact there's no snow on the ground. <laughs> and over here in the corner is uh, Jonathan uh, from Craftmeister, who has been uh, uh, very kind to shuttle Danny and, around, uh, Danny and I around uh, the barrier uh, on this little trip. So. Uh, Jonathan's over in the corner being a nice, quiet presence, uh, enjoying the view. Because, frankly, if we turn around right now, from where I'm looking, there are these massive windows behind me that have this absolutely unprecedented half a billion dollar view onto the San Francisco skyline. I would say a billion. Yeah. Well, of course you would. You're trying to pump up your business, buddy. But I'm dumb. I'm not stupid. <laughs> but no, I, literally, from where we're sitting... 
we uh, turn around look at this you can see like the loading cranes for the bay the bay bridge and then straight into the skyline of san francisco one it of, is amazing one of the best things about this is the fact that um you can actually look to the right and you can see working man oakland how how the whole bay area became what it is um if you look to the right you see the longshoremen and if you look to the left you see all the people in the high rises that are like paying the longshoremen not the wages that they deserved well i was gonna uh, say you you've got you've got the docks to silicon valley here in your view yeah and we have mount tam marin where all the rich people that live in the the work in these buildings and then all the way down here you have silicon valley and all, all the crap that's happening down there i mean I was gonna not say, the crap but you know the oh, crap yeah but if i was more poetical what i would say is that like from your little window here you have like sort of the perfect breadth of the craft beer industry from the idea of beer as working man beverage all the way to like you know the the higher end people that people think oh craft beer that's the target you know it's like all of this within your one bank of windows and that's that's pretty cool it's, no it's 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 insane to think that but uh no it's not insane to think that it's uh it's great to think that but uh, at the end of the day it's like I, I never thought of this before and you just you just made me think and you know if if you look over here to the left which no one can look at but uh, basically across the bay we have uh, anchor scene yep. or anchor uh, right and anchor founding. anchor was founding then you look over here you have Marin Brewing Company they opened uh, in 89 and you look a little to the right and you have uh, Triple Rock they opened in 85 and if you go this way which you can't really see from the stance that we're in you have buffalo bills they were the first brew pub in in the u.s and you just uh, the, the four corners that we have is something to actually sit back and i never really looked at it that way until you just said what you said and you mean Basically. Drew had an insight? No. Okay, good. No. Right, no, 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 no. I, I want this for the record. Drew actually provided a moment of clarity and thought in the universe. Yeah, bullsh**. Eh, well, hey. I just took a poop. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you're true. Cause, I mean, you're right about the fact that, I mean, like, this whole area, there's been, like, all these little spots of development, and now it's grown into this sort of a, a wave that's encompassed really a, a large part of America and it's kind of cool to be a part of that and for you to be able to see those little reminders those little blinkers those little, those little signposts of where all this came from just say yes yes thank you <laughs> alright what was the question no I mean uh, it's it's awesome to see like how the Bay Area itself has like grown to a certain extent um I've been in the Bay Area Brewing scene since uh, 1998 or 99, um, and this is all before like the internet, and it was obviously it wasn't before the internet, but it was like before like it was anyone, popular yeah, it was before like anyone like Yahoo. Yeah. I suspect you have a long litany of this. 
but we're going to force you into a decision. What do you got? What's your favorite curse word? I'd love to say poop, but I think it's f Three for three. There you go. Everybody's favorite curse word seems to be f Now, why do you think that is? Because it just rolls off the tongue faster than you can say hi. Before you're even aware of it, right? It's a, and, well, it's a fucking good word. There you go. Hey, watch your language, man. Oh, sorry. It, it, it's all, it, well, hey, look, you know, it's all bleeping, bleepy, bleepy time. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think it's just f because it's like you're pissed. And what do you, uh, when you're pissed, what are you going to say? Nah, that's not strong enough. No, yeah. I mean, what, what else do you have? Well, I was gonna say, I mean, damn, for, damn. Well, well, I was gonna say for me, damn with an, uh, I, as, an I, N. As much as I f say f or shit, like I think if I needed to have a satisfactory swear, that's usually when I break up. <laughs> but I don't even know if, if in modern day age that that's qualifies just gay, as a swear. Bro. Oh. I mean, what do you uh, what do you have uh, after that? I mean, pussy. What's what's a cuss word? Uh, are we looking at the four cuss words? I, <laughs> Damn, well, fuck, well, shit, Carl, and Carl and seven dirty ass. words, right? Uh, yeah, I, fuck. I, I, I'm gonna go with fuck. I, good hey, choice. it's a good choice. It's a solid choice. All right. Um, all right. So let's get a little bit into the biography. We obviously, obviously, you're here at Faction. You, you've already said you've been involved in the brewing scene since. 98, I think it was, or 88? Sure, why not? It, it, an indeterminate time well before the internet. So, no. There was actually the internet when I went to school for brewing, and there was only, we had 46 people in school when I was going to Siebel, and two people had to email. Awesome. When did you go to Siebel? What 90, year? 1997. Uh, 1997. <laughs> not 1897? I'm sure. How long have you been? Off. <laughs> See? Had had you been brewing professionally before then? Or no. You, Negative. Were you a home brewer? Yes. I started home brewing in 1990. Okay. And what got you into home brewing? Well, that's a funny little story. Uh, <laughs> We're all so essentially, I, um, you can't see it, but uh, was on Grateful Dead tour. Denny's favorite band. That's right. Oh, Denny's favorite band. You, yeah. you, can, you can see the look on his face and the talk from earlier tonight. So we were uh, we were on um, a buddy of mine. We're on uh, excuse me on uh, tour and uh, of the Grateful Dead, and uh, we met up with some Canadians. So we were uh, we we're actually at the the Marin Headlands, which uh, is this great place where you can camp for free and basically it's right on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge you can see the Golden Gate Bridge it was awesome except for the fact that it was, there was just winds like the size of 70 miles per hour so we were just like slammed in our Volkswagen bus and uh, these two Canadians came over and they were like, hey, what's going on? You know, and they're like, what the hell are you guys doing out here? The, and we asked them, uh, we invited them into our Volkswagen bus and we were just hanging out and like, we were playing uh, checkers, I think it was. 
and uh, they started. And this is in 1990, 1990, period, and uh, they started telling me about how they make beer up in Canada. Like how they make it at home. And I was just like, what? And I'm like dumbfounded by this whole thing. Just completely dumbfounded. My parents won't, won't, won't actually never hear this. So I was fing tripping on an acid. Oh. <laughs> I was like, weren't we all in 19? No, my buddy and I decided, like, you know, hey, we're, we're sitting here. It's fing and freezing out let's just go ahead and take a couple hits because we're on you know in between shows and so we're just like in left field waiting for a month I was gonna say, and, and by the way for everybody who can't see Roger's expression which is everybody who's listening uh, there was a little bit of a screwball bitter beer face over to the left and over to the right and then back down again before uh, coming to reality am I here yet <laughs> Exactly. I'm just kidding. Um, but b- bottom line is uh, they just explained to us how to brew beer. And I was just like, wow, this is this is the most amazing thing that I've ever heard of. Because I like beer. And this, I wouldn't say epiphany, but it was just like this. And I kept asking them all these questions because they kept saying like, "Oh yeah, you bring it, you bring water to a, a boil, and you add the yeast malts, and you know this is 1990, so no one really knew like how to do all grain. Maybe they knew how to do it, but they weren't explaining it. But, you know, and they're like, oh, and then you add your hops, and I was just like, Whoa. and suddenly Roger got introduced to his favorite ingredient ever, hops, <laughs> hops." No, I was introduced that earlier. The <laughs> cousin of, <laughs> but uh, it, it was just the most amazing thing that I've ever heard in my life, and I was just like, "Wow!" Uh, and I kept asking them, like, "How do I do this? How do I do this when I go back down to Orange County?" And they said, "You know, this is way before the internet, people. Uh, look in the yellow pages." under winemaking and I, I was living in Huntington Beach at the time and went back looked under the, the uh, winemaking and sure enough there was a place in Orange called Fun Fermentations mm-hmm. and I just got in my Volkswagen bus and I drove right over there and I took a buddy of mine with me I got the starter kit. Uh, uh, who was the guy? Carl? Kurt. Carl. Kurt, uh, was it Kurt? Uh, I can't remember actually. Right big, now, big guy? Yep. Uh, and uh, unfortunately dying, but sorry. Don't we all? <laughs> Eventually. But mm-hmm. uh, talked to him, and he's like, here you go. And set me on my way. And one of the funniest things was because uh, I was 19 at the time, maybe 20, and uh, my buddy was just like, "Dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna laugh at you when you get busted when we get pulled over with all this beer." But we all, we only had the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, do you want me to carry on with the story? Well, no, but it, but it, perfectly legal. To have just the ingredients. Yeah. No, I know. I, I know it's legal. Yep. 
that's what they said to me. They are like, are you 18? <laughs> Maybe. Do you want me to carry on with the story? Or you... Oh, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. So, uh, basically went home and uh, brewed the beer, and it sucked. It sucked out loud. I was just like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever brewed. Or not brewed, but ever. Why am I doing this? And you, but per- we you had, persevered. We persevered because we were drinking Anchors in uh, uh, Sierra Nevadas. And um, then after that, it was like, wow, we had fun doing that. Let's do it again. It may have sucked, but damn it, we had a good time doing it. Exactly. And we did it again, and we did it again, and they all sucked. But it was having fun, you know, it was, didn't matter. And like, then finally, it was, uh, uh, sorry. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, what marked the turning point from, hey, this sucked, to suddenly it didn't suck? Uh, it never did, back in the day in Huntington. I think the, uh, the, 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 the biggest thing that, like, hit me was, uh, so I'm sitting there watching TV with a bunch of buddies at the house in Huntington, and, uh, we hear these explosions. We're like, why are you guys laughing at me? Because we know where this is going. (laughs) Three old, three older brothers <coughs> sitting around a table, all just losing their losing their crap. So <laughs> I, I um, so I'm sitting there and we're watching TV and like, bam! What the f- was that? Everyone runs around. Uh, it was most of my roommates, uh, and they checked their windows because we thought it was like, you know, just some window that decided to like fall out of the building building that we were in was pretty old but so we're sitting there and uh we came back and we're that no so it wasn't my window it wasn't bottles exploding uh, exploding yet um and that was my second brew so yeah so everyone was running around checking out their windows and i was like I don't know what the fuck's going on, and everyone's like, what the fuck? Two times it happened. Three times. Then all of a sudden I was just like, time to go check the brew. Mason took you three times. And I was like, oh, found out why the windows were, ex- quote unquote, why they were exploding. We were all running around like we didn't know what the fuck was going on, and uh, turns out uh, it was the beer because I put it in the fridge and this is our second second batch because I had a couple friends that were uh, quote unquote helping me they, they immediately dismissed themselves from helping me <laughs> but they probably want to be my friends now even though I haven't talked to them in a long time some of them yeah. Well, most the, of the, them I have the, there's always a thing about homebrewers friends like hey I'm helping you out with the batch you're not helping me out. You're drinking my beer, asshole. It's asshole. Oh, I'm sorry, asshole. <laughs> it's French. <laughs> oui, oh, oui. oh, it's Spanish. <laughs> uh, but uh, basically, what at the end of the day, uh, ended up opening these bottles, and they were literally like 
all the way, I would say, 10 feet up and just spraying down. It wasn't like 10 feet up and then coming back down by itself. It was 10 feet up to hit the ceiling to come cascading back down. Well, so now we have to ask the obvious question. You know, like you started with these inauspicious days of, you know, exploding bottles and everything else. How in the ever-living hell did you go from being such a rookie noob to a man who now has a giant warehouse around you dedicated to the idea that, ostensibly, you brew good beer? Stupidity. It has to be more than that. Smarts. Basically, basically, what was happening in my life, uh, I moved up here to Northern California from Southern California where I was brewing the homebrew. And I came up here because the Grateful Dead was playing more often. <laughs> well, I can see why that this, would be an attraction. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, it wasn't the Grateful Dead so much as this guy Jerry Garcia was playing more often. Oh, the mindless noodler. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, this is one of these. That would be when, the one. Well, this is one of these moments when, when I really wish earlier in the day, while we were turning around Roger's absolutely gorgeous brewery over here with uh, an enormous amount of space, we had little hidden lavalier mics to capture this whole discussion between Denny and Roger earlier. Yeah, when when it seemed like everything was about to go off the rails because of the disagreement about the quality of the Grateful Dead. There's no disagreement. Oh, no, no, no. There's a disagreement about the quality of the Grateful Dead. Well, you can't fix stupid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for you. <laughs> right back at you. All right. So we come back up here because, or you come up here because of the dead or other factors, but mostly the dead. Or No, I came back. Uh, I moved to uh, Northern California, and I became a bike messenger over in... Uh, what what uh, Jonathan can see is San Francisco, and if you guys turn around, you can see it as well. And uh, I wasn't really a, a school guy, you know. I didn't give two shits about like learning. I just wanted to learn it myself. Who gives a shit about like you know? Well, that kids go to school, but at the end of the day, it's like who gives a shit about like I mean a. F- That's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, about uh, how how schools are structured, and don't don't get me started on that. Oh, wait, you already done. So, anyways, I was a bike messenger, and um, learn you learn a lot by doing that, and it's uh, it's kind of scary in the whole nine yards, and you you take your life in your hands every time you you go out there and ride a bike and. Anyways, they brought me in to be a dispatcher, and I dispatched bike messengers for about two years, and at the end of a year and a half, I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this life thing, and I stopped homebrewing. I had moved up here, I was doing homebrewing down in uh, Huntington. And when I moved up here, I was doing it occasionally. I went to a, a friend, uh, what, what was the Marin run? Uh, Marin Brewing or? No, Marin, um, 
homebrew place. It was a frenzy, fun frenzy or something like that. And they 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 directed me for a couple things to uh, Homer. Homer's Homer's a god. Homer's a god. Well, well, just real quick. Uh, Homer is from uh, Oak Oak Barrel. Oak Barrel. Yeah, in Berkeley. He's 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 the fucking man. What happened was uh, I just had to figure out that there was a better better thing in life, and so my parents were nice enough to to front me some money to go to Siebel. Siebel's a brewing school, uh, and from there I ended up getting jo- jobs left in, well okay. yeah, I got a job let's go with that At jobs San- are important first first brew job was uh, San Francisco Brewing Company on uh, Columbus and sat there for eight months everyone everyone that I can't say anything bad about it Never well, mind. I was gonna say, I mean, San Francisco Brewing Company, which was housed in like the oldest saloon operating in San Francisco, and you know, then went away for a little bit and has now been resurrected. Kind of. Uh, Are we talking 2015? Yeah, like the label has. Yes, exactly. But uh, so, all right, so you go San Francisco Brewing Company, and then what? Pyramid. Sorry, sip of beer. That's okay. I, from there, I went to uh, to Pyramid. Uh, Pyramid in Berkeley at the time was bustling. I mean, literally doing like close to, I'd say, two hundred thousand barrels of uh, beer. I'm sorry, am I keeping you awake? <laughs> no, it's the beer. All right. So two two hundred thousand barrels of beer, and uh, on the side we're doing eighty thousand barrels of maybe soda from Thomas Kemper. We we were bustling. I mean, we that uh, it's so disappointing to see what what happened with that whole facility. Well, uh, it, it, it's it's now, now right? yeah. yeah. So I, I want to like ask you about Siebel. Uh, do you think that like? What you gained there was directly responsible for you getting these jobs? Yes and no. In, okay. Yes, and the fact that uh, uh, you can get a job. I went to Siebel in 98. I didn't get a job till 99. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking like calendar years. I, I think uh, when I graduated in August, I started, uh, actually had an interview with uh, the great John, John Harris. So, um, when, you're, when you're brewing today, what is like, what guides you? Is it like your, what you learned at Siebel or what you've learned since through experience? So what happens with Siebel is basically they teach you everything that you need to know about brewing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they don't teach you about recipe formulation so much. When I was there, this guy um, who I madly respect, Christopher Bird, taught us how to do recipe formulation. But at the end of the day, 
You don't know what recipe formulation is until you get your hands on the ingredients and your hands into the actual brew house. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, it's it's book knowledge versus hands-on knowledge. Exactly, it's street knowledge as opposed to book knowledge. So, so when you're out there brewing every day, which one of those? Do you draw on most? Is there one that's more important than the other, or do they balance out? I would go street. Yeah. Because uh, the bottom line is uh, what you want to do in brewing is realize what your system is. Um, and if you're there every day, I mean, a lot of home brewers don't, don't work on their system every day. So, and... To be honest with you, we learn a lot from homebrewers because we're all homebrewers to heart, but those guys, you guys, whatever, homebrewers can actually, you know, hey, this Maris Otter, uh, as opposed to the regular Pale Ale with the same hopping, can do present this. And we can't do that because we're looking more at consistency of how we're going to make our beers. And you, once you, you once you know your system, you you realize that you know, hey, this this hop's not going to work with that or this. And um, do yeah. you do you brew for yourself or do you brew for the customers? We brew for ourselves. Right on, buddy. <laughs> that's that's a really. Yeah. I mean, why? Why? I mean, if I'm not making beer that I like, then why am I making beer? Well, you know, and I, from drinking your beers, I can tell that they all suck. <laughs> exactly well, the opposite. That's because, that's because you suck. <laughs> oh wait, no. Interview so, over. So, <laughs> uh, Drew, Drew, I someone think, sucks. I think it's time for the big question all now. Right. Well, exactly. All right, so Roger, here's the here's the question we've been uh, hoisting everybody on because I love this question. Should I put my hat on for you this? Probably should. Yeah, you probably should. I think you need to fully gird your loins for this question. Should I run? Well, I don't want to watch him gird his loins. Should I run? <laughs> there's no running from this question. Yeah, there is. I there's a door right there. Right? <laughs> no, no, Jonathan over here in the corner is surprisingly fast. He would catch that door before you can get there. He's small, but he's wiry. He just said he's not that fast. <laughs> well, he's a white guy from Wisconsin. You can't trust him. Not that fast. Okay, so here's the big question. All right. So, Mr. Roger. And Mr. Roger. Yes. Not Mr. Rogers, because that's way too uh, sacred and image <laughs> profane. Mr. Roger. Mr. Roger. Omitting the word balance... Describe your brewing philosophy. Hops. Oh, you asked me. You answered it. Fuck Seriously. Why would you even ask me that question? <laughs> well, because that question gets the greatest stoppage from most crappers. Or like, you're the only person who didn't sit there for five minutes going, "What the f-? hops? <laughs> Hop forward. It's all about hop forward." All right, so t- uh, tell the. Uh, Tell us about hop forward and like what what you think that means in terms of like making. It's, a, it's like. all about putting hops into a beer. Uh, I, I was actually two weeks, uh, actually two months ago. I was 
sitting at a place and I was drinking a beer and I was just like, wow, this is, this is really good, but it's really malty. <laughs> so in other words, you're, you're the kind of guy who's like going, I just need a little pinch of hops right there between the cheek and the gum. Yeah, wouldn't hurt. <laughs> so I've noticed that all your beers have an amazing hop flavor to them. Is that something you target or does that just happen? And how do you do it? No, it happens by the fact that we do it that way. Yeah, right. You you plan you plan. You that. think we're just sitting around with our no. pants around uh, our uh, fucking ankles uh, like, well, hey, what do we do now? Having met you, uh, that, that could be possible. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it actually does happen. So, so when you want to get like really huge hop flavor into a beer... How do you do it? What what's what's the thought process here? I could tell you, but then I have to kill him. That's all right. Top secret attraction. I'm, I'm old. I'm ready. <laughs> no, the bottom line is, uh, you know, lightly bitter it when it starts. Uh, we do a 85 minute boil. Um, I read something from uh, Mr. Matt. Brindleson, mm-hmm. many many years ago, about um, the fact that he he does it that way, and I was like, "Yeah, Matt only knows." This is this is in ninety eight, ninety nine, and he was actually one of my one of my roundtable people. I, I give him shit all the time about this. He's like, he's like, "Yeah, I don't remember you." It's like you probably shouldn't, well, <laughs> but he was the head brewer at Goose at Siebel. What's that? Round table at Siebel? Yeah. Right, so like instructors at Siebel are giving you the exam type bullshit. No, the round table would be like all the people get together and uh, they would bring in the people from Goose Island, right. from Mickey Finn's, and that's where I went for my hands-on was Mickey Finn's. And Brendelson was obviously smarter and right now he's just like, I wish I had half his brain. I actually a quarter of his brain because the <laughs> mother is so smart. Do you do a lot of whirlpool hopping? Yeah, but most of it. Uh, so back to the uh, the the op the original post. Yeah. Uh, what we do typically is uh, we'll we'll hop it through the kettle to a certain extent. But then we'll go to a, a level that is, you know, exuberant, if you will, uh, in the on the hot side. But what's the point of what we'll do is like we'll we'll hop out of it in the in the in the hot side, not I said say, not do it on the hot side, and then um, just put it on the cold side. Cold side meaning post fermentation. Yeah. Well, it's not post, not post. But post at fermentation chill. at fermentation time. Right. So your your post chill fermentation is happening. You're injecting more hop hop flavor in there. So, so not you, flavor or aroma. aroma. You you add hop. So you have to get the you have you seriously have to get the um, the flavor from. The uh, from the kettle, and then you you add hops during the fermentation. Yeah. Wow. Cool. I've never. No, met. not during. Okay. After. 
So, okay. Now, now, how do you feel? Like, I know, like, Vinny and Matt and, and these other guys have talked about, like, multi-day, like, short stint hop, dry hop regimens where, you know, XYZ amount of time on the hops at 67 degrees and then switch out those hops or add more. Do you do, you do any of these kind of complicated no. dry hop schedules? No. So you're just, like, massive charge all at once and go with it? All right, well, and that was part one of our epic interview with Roger Davis of Faction Brewing Company. Uh, there's more to come, a lot more. Oh, a lot more. If you find yourself in the Bay Area, I highly recommend that you go by hook, by crook, by ferry, by taxi, by Uber. Get yourself Uber to Faction Brewing Company in Alameda and really take a, a moment to enjoy the billion-dollar view and all of the crazy beers and the crazy beer ideas that Roger has put together. He has a real strong philosophy and a real strong knack for making exploratory ingredient focused beers that are really damn tasty. Yeah, very, very good. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Well, it's question time again. That time when we try and find out if uh, our listeners are smarter than we are or if we're less smart than we think we are. Wait a minute, what is that? At any rate, we have four questions this week that we're going to take on. Drew, go for the first one. All right. The first question comes from a friend of mine, uh, Israel Arietta. Uh, he says, how would you go about doing a nitro keg of beer as a home brewer? I want to play around with the process, but I have no idea where to start beyond buying some beer gas and a nitro faucet. Uh, you know, I haven't played around with doing nitro beers in a long, long time, but I've done it a couple of different ways. And here's what I think works uh, for me. A little background first. When you hear people talk about nitro beers, they're not literally talking about beers on nitrous or just pure nitrogen. They're talking about using uh, what's commonly referred to as beer gas mixture. And in the in the Guinness world, that's 70% nitrogen, 30% CO2. Uh, you use that to originally, uh, when it was first introduced with keg beers, the idea was to emulate cask beer carbonation levels and cask beer creaminess, but with uh, the ability to do longer runs and not get overly gassy. The reason that works is nitrogen is not soluble in an aqueous solution like beer. So if you're looking at your sort of partial pressures, the idea is you can have a very high pressure necessary to drive beer through a, a gas line, or sorry, through a beer line and through a restrictor plate on a faucet have enough pressure to do that and still only have your partial pressure of carbonation or your partial pressure of CO2, which is what will drive your carbonation uh, at a low enough level that you're not making your beer into explosive gassiness. So there are two schools of thought about how you deal with nitro and beer. One is hook the keg up to a high pressure of, of the beer gas mix somewhere about what you're going to be serving it at, which is usually, I think, in the 20 to 25 range, and it's been a long time since I've done that, so forgive me if I get that number wrong. Uh, and then just carbonate it like you would a normal beer. Let it sit there, shake it, you know, do rock and roll, whatever you need to do, and 
let the partial pressure of CO2 gradually dissolve into the beer. Now, when I've done that before, I found that to be a good recipe for wasting a beer gas canister because for some reason, whenever I do it, I end up with leaks. Uh, and I think that might be because some of the stuff I'm doing just isn't ready for that high of a pressure. So what I've eventually switched to doing and prefer to do is I will carbonate the beer with pure CO2 at a level that I think is appropriate for sort of an Englishy caskish ale. So usually like say about one to 1.5 volumes of CO2. And I'll just do that with my regular CO2 tank. And I do it with my usual process, which is a sort of a slightly modified controlled version of the slam and shake. And then when I get ready to serve it, then I hook it up to the, to the nitro beer gas tank and pour it through the faucet. And then that way, I don't have to worry about trying to do anything complicated about making sure I'm getting enough CO2 in there. I just use the CO2 that's in the beer gas to balance everything out. Yeah, so I really think that's, that that's the preferred method and what most people do. So um, so if you'll permit me my two cents worth, and since it's my podcast too, I'm going to give it to you whether you want it or not. I'm not a big fan of uh, nitro beers. Uh, doesn't mean that you can't be. But the reason I don't like them is because they always come across as flat to me. And the, to tell you the truth, that's what makes people think that they're creamy. As Drew mentioned, with nitrogen, you can serve the beer at a much, much higher pressure. By doing that, when you serve the beer, you're actually knocking the CO2 out of solution and making that beer flat. Well, the, rest well, the restrictor here, here, part is knocking the CO2 out of solution. Stop. Well, even even serving the beer at a higher pressure is not even without a restrictor plate. You're doing that because you're you've got the beer in there at a higher pressure. Let me give you a little tip about the days before nitrogen beers. Believe it or not, Guinness didn't always use nitrogen. Many, many years ago, when you would go out and buy a six pack of Guinness, it would come with a little syringe. What you would do is after you poured some beer from a bottle into your glass, you would stick that syringe into the beer, suck up some beer, and shoot it back into your glass, doing that a number of times. That had the same effect of knocking the CO2 out of solution, giving you that big creamy head and the creamy mouth feel of the beer. So if you want to play with this and you don't want to uh, bother with getting a whole nitrogen setup, just head on down to your local drugstore, pick up a, a little plastic syringe, and uh, give that a try before you go for it. So there, that's my cheap and easy nitro solution. And absolutely. And I will, I will agree with you about one thing. I, I don't actually mind nitro on some beers, like a, a bitter style of beers or even some stouts. Where I really do mind it, and I don't understand why people do it, is with IPAs. Because it, yeah, I know, man. it kills every last ounce of hop aroma. So please don't do that. Well, I mean, you know, if you feel like you really need to do it, fine. But think about why you're doing it. And think about maybe I didn't want that IPA in the first place. Huh? Indeed. Alrighty, the next question comes from Thomas Gerdes, uh, who says... Is there any documentation that says or shows which hops go well with each other, as well as do not combine hops X with hops Z? Well, Thomas, I got to tell you, man, no, there's not, because it's just way too subjective. It's based on your own personal taste. I have a real penchant for combining German and American hops, uh, things like Columbus and Mount Hood, Cascade and Tetanang. Uh, things that many people would say, 
Why, you can't do that. Well, of course you can, because it's up to your own taste. I got to throw this in there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, fuggles and nothing. I mean, you know, you should never put those in your beer. But that's that's my personal taste, you know? Um, so that's why you can't really come up with a chart like that. You might be able to come up with some things that are particularly good combinations. Uh, I feel like... Uh, Combining Simcoe, Amarillo, and Centennial makes a beer that I really, really enjoy. But I can't tell you that there are any you should particularly stay away from, because that's going to depend on what you like. Yeah, and, and I'm, I do kind of have a little bit of a philosophy on it, but even then it's not a hard and fast one, which is I tend to prefer to keep myself down to a minimum amount of super characterful hops, you know, something like a Citra or Centennial or Columbus and back those up with something neutral. And otherwise I tend to like to keep hops together that are kind of in the same family of general organoleptic experience. So the tropicals together, the, the citruses together, the piney, the spices, uh, and that's how I look at it, but that's a recipe design philosophy that works for me. Yeah, right. It's just like I was saying, it uh, completely depends on your individual subjective tastes uh, unlike Drew, I prefer to put hops together that are unlike each other because I think that I get something out of each one that can complement each other. But, you know, all I can tell you, Thomas, is start experimenting and see. P again, and this goes back to your taste imagination that I always talk about. Picture in your mind what your hops are going to give you and then try and combine them in your head which could make a pretty big mess up there, but you know, <laughs> okay. Next question. I get, I get this one too. This is from Mark Fancher. Mark wants to know, does hop residue confound refractometer readings is my first word hopping messing with my pre-boil gravity measurements. Uh, short answer is no, it's not. Um, think about this for a second. The only thing that you're measuring with a refractometer or a hydrometer is what is actually dissolved into the wort. You can tell that those hops are not dissolved into the wort because you can see the residue from them on the bottle of, uh, of say, your hydrometer flask or in the bottom of your kettle. Um, this was uh, dramatically demonstrated to me by the following analogy. Uh, imagine you have uh, a swimming pool. You throw a bunch of poodles into the swimming pool. Oh, do I love that theory. Um, and then suddenly, does the water become any thicker? No, it doesn't, because those poodles aren't dissolving into the water, uh, we, we hope at least. So at any rate, things that are not actually dissolved into your wort will not affect gravity readings. So um, don't worry about well, it. Although I will throw in a sort of counterpiece on that about refractometers. Uh, I, when I do my refractometer readings, I do like to make sure that I have about as clear of a sample as I can get. I'm not super obsessive about it. And it's not really because it's going to interfere with the gravity reading. Uh, if you have a lot of particulate matter, I find in the sample for a lot of the particularly cheap, you know, Chinese made refractometers that we get, your line of demarcation of where you're reading gets to be fuzzier and it becomes a little bit harder to read. Yeah. So, that's why I prefer sure, to do a, a cleaner sample, but it's not going to drastically affect your gravity reading. Nope, not at all. Not at all. Last question's up to you, man. 
All right. Well, I know one of us is going to have an easy time with this question. Uh, I'm going to have a slightly harder time. This one comes from uh, our Facebook feed from a user who goes by the sobriquet Mash Paddle. Uh, and Mash Paddle asks, what is Denny's and Drew's favorite yeast? So, Denny, you want to take the 30 sec- <laughs> uh, your, your 30 seconds here? Uh, this, this has got to be a trick question, right? Uh, and actually, there are two ways that I can answer this. Number I mean, and it depends on what the definition of favorite is. Uh, favorite to me can either be the yeast that I use most often and tend to throw in most everything, or the yeast that when I taste a beer I made with it, it's like, wow, the contribution this yeast made is stunning. For the first one, uh, there's no doubt that it's got to be Y Yeast 1450. There's a reason it's called Denny's Favorite 50, and that's because that's the yeast that I reach for for just about any kind of American beer I make. Uh, I love it for American pale ales, American IPAs, porters, stouts. Basically, this is a killer yeast where you want uh, a really nice kind of silky mouthfeel without having to have a high finishing gravity in order to get it. Uh, I just, you know, I, I discovered it uh, from a, a company uh, years ago and uh, started uh, using it, and I just absolutely love it. The one that I would have to say that when I drink a beer with it, I go, wow, this yeast really, really makes this beer, would have to be uh, Y Yeast seventeen sixty two, uh, which is uh, from Rochefort. I just love the fa- flavor contributions that yeast has. There's some real nice fruitiness from it that isn't over the top, and great phenols that really balance the fruitiness of the yeast. So. There's my more than 30-second explanation. How about you? All right. Well, for me, it's all situational. I don't have a yeast named after me because apparently nobody loves me that much. Um, but here, here are a couple simple ones. For American ales, uh, I, I admit I'll be boring. It's the uh, 1056 White Labs 001 and USO5 complex or the San Diego Super Ale yeast. Uh, for Saisons, uh, I suppose all of them is the wrong answer. But if you forced me to choose for classical saison, for things I think are uh, not oddball character ingredient saisons, I really like White Lab Saison 3, which is a platinum strain, uh, only comes out every once in a while. I also really like the saison uh, brasserie saison uh, blend from East Coast Yeast. For a wild and crazy saison, like any of my West Coast American hop saisons or the clam chowder saison or, you know, the give Denny a heart attack saison. I like uh, Y-East 3711, the French saison. It's a monster fermenter. It's very clean. It's fairly neutral. And the fact that it gives you those that kind of slick mouthfeel allows you to play around with some very interesting characteristics. And I'm not kidding. I think it works fantastically with uh, a big hop charge. And that's really, it really makes sense because that yeast supposedly comes from Barry Therese, where one of their big beers that first came over here was a beer called North Star, which was a, a hoppy saison. And that's kind of where I stole the idea and ran, ran away with it. And then if I'm going to go English, uh, my two favorites are Tim's Valley from White Yeast. And the other one would be the White Labs Essex Ale Yeast, which is also a platinum, which means I can only get it sometimes, which means I hoard it throughout the year. So there you go. Hops. Man, and I thought 
I thought that I was rambling when I named two, and you like just went off. But well, yeah, but I was, oh, but I was faster. All righty, we're going to take a quick break here, grab another beer, and when we come back, we'll have our quick tip of the week. We'll talk about something that's not beer, and we'll wrap up the whole show for you. Hey, we're back with a new segment and a new beer. Drew is going to talk about his quick tip of the week, which is pressure racking. Yeah, so... We spend a lot of time as homebrewers uh, worrying about our clarity, worrying about uh, moving beer around. We don't have all the fancy tools, most of us, uh, that uh, professional brewers do, where, you know, we got nice conicals with uh, hoses that we can drag things out of the bottom from. So we spend a lot of time doing things like trying to figure out how to do siphons. Now, one of the things that always bothered me as a homebrewer was I didn't like the fact that I would sit there and I would allow my beer to settle for two, three, four weeks. You know, get that yeast cake all dropped out of there, nice, brilliant, and clear wort. And then if I wanted to go siphon my beer, I, the very first thing I had to do was go pick the damn thing up and put it up on somewhere high so I could then, you know, rack out of it. And no matter how careful I was about moving it, I was going to get some disturbance of that giant pile of sludge at the bottom. So that really kind of offended me. So what I started to do was use CO2. Of course, I have a lot of kegs around, so I have a lot of CO2. And I just built myself a very simple stainless steel racking cane with carboy hoodie and a gas valve at the top, you know, a gas barb. And what I do is I just pop that thing down in the carboy, set the level of the racking cane, tie on some CO2, and turn it on at very, very low pressure, 2 to 3 PSI, uh, and then just watch as the beer magically transfers itself. Now, danger point here. We are talking carboys. Carboys are not pressure vessels. We are talking about pressurizing a non-pressure vessel. This could be potentially dangerous. Most of those carboy hoodies, though, seem to work perfectly so that they don't allow the carboy to overpressurize and instead slip off and run away before the pressure builds up to something dangerous. So that's my tip. Go look at my website. Go look at Experimental Homebrewing, uh, the book. You'll see how to do pressure racking in there. It is uh, one of the great things that I've ever done, and it made it so that I was no longer reluctant to move my beer around. Uh, nowadays, I also do a lot of fermenting in kegs, and therefore, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, but if you are using a carboy, please be very, very careful. Be very aware of what you're doing. Don't tape that carboy cap on there. <laughs> you know, yeah, If it wants to come off, you want it to come off, so... So it's time to talk about something other than beer, and uh, this week we have uh, something kind of sad, although that's life, um, the, the passing of a couple cultural and artistic icons, David Bowie and Alan Rickman, uh, we lost this week. Um, David Bowie, I mean, what can, what can you say? Uh, when I first heard David Bowie back in the 70s, I wasn't quite sure what to think if I really liked him or not, if it was just too weird for me. And then as I became weirder, I decided that, nope, nope, this guy is right on. His music sensibility was stunning, always changing. I just listened to his uh, last album, Black Star, yesterday, and it's hard to believe that uh, this 69-year-old guy came out with music that is so innovative and exciting and different than anything he'd ever done before. Um, fashion wise, 
cultural influence wise i mean i it's just hard to say enough about david bowie huh? yeah and i mean i obviously i grew up uh, a child of the 80s so i i first encountered bowie in the let's dance you know dancing in the streets slash china girl era which may or may not be good david bowie but eventually i came to discover all the stuff from the 70s and was absolutely mesmerized and blown away by it like you, I had heard uh, Black Star a little bit before the news had pa- uh, announced about his passing, and all I can think of is how many artists get to go out on such a personal message that they make, like a sort of a summation of their legacy. And particularly when you go and you listen to some of the songs on there, like Black Star or Lazarus, uh, you know, in reflection of the fact that he knew damn well what he was doing. It's amazing. Uh, like, I can only think of, like, the only other ones I can think of in terms of music are Warren Zevon, who did that great album of basically Screw You Cancer, and uh, also Johnny Cash, who seemed to kind of re- reinvent himself in his last couple of years, and really kind of that weariness and pain that he that he left in the legacy that, that he left behind. So, all I have to say, if you're going to go, man, that is a hell of a way to make your mark on the way out. <laughs> yeah. And Alan Rickman, man, a, a guy who was a brilliant, brilliant actor. Everything from uh, Shakespeare to Galaxy Quest. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife and I watched Galaxy Quest last night as a little tribute to him. One of my all-time favorite movies. And uh, I know I'm going to get labeled as a soppy romantic, but man, his role in Love Actually just blows me away well um no no I, come on how, how can you talk alan rickman without talking the his very first film role the one that made him alan rickman you know exactly what i'm talking about the best villain ever i, I may not the best villain ever hans gruber oh oh die huh? die yes. hard i that was his first film that role? was his first film role uh hans gruber of die hard one of the best villains ever, and one of the best Christmas movies ever. It was, it was, it was a fun movie, but uh, you know, I, I, and he did a great job. Uh, to me, that's not like uh, I was going to say it's not a real demonstration of his acting ability. But then uh, I'm talking Galaxy Quest too. So let's just say that Alan Rickman could do it all. As a matter of fact, um, for those of you who are as old as I am, you might remember Michael Oldfield's uh, Tubular Bells. I just learned today that Alan Rickman was the narrator in Tubular Bells. Pretty damn cool. So anyway, we bid a fond farewell to these two guys. Um, Thank you for your legacy. Thank you for all the enduring work that you did that we'll still be able to enjoy even after you're gone. Um, And let's hope that uh, some new people come along to... uh, take up that flag and carry on the kind of uh, work that you guys were doing. Well, and Denny, since you've had a lot of practice uh, using the bleeping button in this episode, uh, I'm going to leave this segment with another bleep. F*** cancer. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Indeed. F*** cancer. Now that leads us to the question of the week, and actually it's going to be a couple of questions of this week. Uh, So what do you think of our results? Uh, You know, was this surprising to you? Was it not surprising? Uh, what do you think of the whole, hey, uh, you're telling people what the experimental dealio is, Quandary? And did Denny miss anything in his epic bleep fest of our friend Roger? Probably. Let us know at experimentalbrew.com. 
Okay, Drew, why don't you recap what we did this week? Oh my god, what didn't we do this week? Uh, it feels like it's been uh, <laughs> a monster episode. So, let's see. We started off uh, going through some listener feedback. Uh, you may remember that. That was about two hours ago now. Uh, talking about all the different things, brewers resolutions and other things that people are preparing to do and uh, the homebrew shops. We talked about your trip to Vale. We talked about a little bit of the dangers about grapefruit. And we also talked about, hey, actually trying to figure out what's going on in the world of hops. And then obviously my favorite part of the segment, I think, or this episode was getting to discuss the first set of results we've ever had from one of our experiments. And I was really happy that we managed to get Marshall shot on here to help us walk through the results and verify that what we were seeing was something that we were actually seeing. Yeah, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to Marshall right now. Yeah, And then, of course, let's not forget... The always, the never-ending discussion that we will have with Roger Davis from now until the end of time. Uh, Roger is definitely a font of knowledge and a font of endless stories. Yeah, and we uh, we kind of cut that off abruptly as he was talking about his hop uh, techniques. So we'll kind of like replay the last minute or so of that next week before we go on with the rest of it. Yeah, and so... Uh, Absolutely. Come back for uh, next uh, next episode when we're going to launch another experiment. And we're also going to come back and finish off our discussions with Roger. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for sticking in there with us for uh, nearly two hours uh, for this episode. Uh, we promise we'll try not to do that to you too often, but we just had so much good stuff this week. Yeah, I'd much rather us have too much good stuff than not enough. So in the meanwhile, we hope that you guys found this entertaining, and we hope that you come back to the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Well, thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. Where Drew tells me we're on Instagram, but, you know, I, I wouldn't know. Uh, and uh, any other kind of social media platform that uh, the kids are using these days. Don't forget, if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even rant and rave, you can email us at experimentalbrew.com, or you can email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So we'll see you on the next episode, and until then, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky.